0: Hello, my name is Giovanni, this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session when we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. As you all may know, and as I'm sure I made evident through both this show's runs, I love watching movies. And as much as I love watching them, that is only a part of the experience as a consumer of the medium. I love thinking about movies almost as much as I love watching them, and talking about them even more. I don't get to have conversations about movies enough, especially now in the social distancing age, so I thought I'd use this platform to start a series within a series, where I talk about movies. Today I'm going to be talking about five of my favorite foreign films of all time. I wanted to start off this series, or subseries on films with foreign movies because of the general rejection of them by the average American moviegoer. Reasons for not watching foreign films or not wanting to range from the differences in artistic style from the East and the West, for example, and relevant subject matter from you know, Hollywood movies them not being as relevant to our social circles as the biggest blockbuster films we go, you know, watching with our friends, and the biggest reason being not wanting to read subtitles. <laughs> and I wouldn't put it past some people with more bigoted mindsets and hyper-nationalist mentality to try to deny the merit and artistic qualities of films because of their status as foreign. By the way, how bad were the Academy Awards this year? Did you see it? And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? We got enough problems with South Korea, with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. You know, I'm looking for, like, where, where... Let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get, like, Gone with the Wind back, please? Sunset Boulevard. So many great movies. The winner is from South Korea. I thought it was best foreign film, right? this foreign movie! No! It was the Did this ever happen before? Art is that which speaks to us. It bridges the realms of reality and fiction by way of the artist's unique voice and message regarding sometimes personal, sometimes universal themes. It should go without saying that art, and particularly masterful artists, can be found around the world. Talent does not discriminate who it is possessed by. And no amount of racism or xenophobia will magically make this untrue and no amount of nationalists can make this cursed nation as perfect in the eyes of the world as it is in theirs. All five of the films I will be discussing today have a specific human imperfection as a central theme. Classism. Classism is the prejudice that one may have in favor or against a people of a certain social class, and often fueled by race or economic status. Each of these films has something to say about the issue in their own unique and artistic way. I have to get through five films, so let's not waste any more time. Oh, but before I do, I would like to add that I will not be discussing any major spoilers for any of these films. I essentially want to convince you all to watch these movies and come, back to, your own, come to your own conclusion regarding their artistic worth. Um, so watch them if you want and let me know what you think. Alright, let's, let's get started. The first two films I will be discussing are similar in some ways, namely in their exploration of a family's struggles with being members of the lower rungs of the social ladder and their attempts to find comfort and happiness through uncomfortable and even criminal means. Despite these general similarities, the approach each of these film's directors took could not be any more different. I'm starting this discussion with a film that made history by becoming the first foreign film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture just this year, the film that was being criticized uh, earlier. I'm of course talking about a little Korean film called Parasite. Director Bong Joon-ho's magnum opus is an ensemble dark comedy thriller about two separate families, one rich and one poor, that take up the titular role of parasites. Now I'm going to be talking about five different movies so I will try to limit myself by talking about the three or so things that I consider each movie perfecting. So with parasite let's start with its thematic blending, that is how well it blends its central themes into the narrative. Again, without giving spoilers, the use of metaphors to symbolize the class's struggle that the film is commenting on is particularly strong and fairly obvious enough to not pass off as pretentious writing. It's a film that is saying something about the two families' uh, status as parasites, and by the end we get a sense of futility in the central character's struggles. Keeping a careful consideration of a character's physical situation and their movement from said situation tells a story in of itself in Parasite. Throughout the movie, characters comment on the metaphorical status of their situation or an object they are holding, literally telling the audience of some of the metaphors and allowing them to piece together to the greater message and narrative of the film. I could talk about these uh, masterful weaving uh, of narrative and themes more specifically, but again, I would not want to spoil any major plot points of what I would consider the most perfect movie I've ever seen. But one aspect of the film I could talk about with examples and that helps it immensely in its status as perfect in my eyes is its editing. Normally, great editor editors make sure to piece scenes together in a way that makes chronological sense. And with specific scenes, they want to edit together based on the emotion they are trying to get out of the audience. But Parasite editor Jim No Yang did much more than that. According to him, his editing process was facilitated by director Bong Joon-ho's uh, storyboard process, which... He uses to not give a general idea of what he wants to shoot, which is what uh, storyboards are usually used as, um, but gives an exact notion of what he wants out of the p- final product, which is enforced by his insistence on only shooting what is necessary. Uh, this allows Jim No Yang to enact the specific rhythm and pace that Bong Jun ho envisioned. This idea of rhythm for me is best felt in two specific scenes. One is around the halfway point, uh, what we can refer to as the turning point, and another towards the end of the film, the climax. Each scene has a specific flow that is enhanced by the actions and dialogue between characters. Notice their hand movements, uh, their walking speeds, stuff like that. In one case, it's almost action film-esque, fast-paced editing to signify the uh, speed and strength, or the passion, of our characters' actions. But this is also due in large part to the absolute masterful editing between shots. There's not a bit of wasted film. Every word, every action, every breath was filled with purpose for the greater good of the film. Bits of knowledge given to the audience cleverly and naturally build off of one another in an effort to tell a perfectly concise film packed with meaning. There's an attention to detail here that truly boggles the mind. Seemingly insignificant details were later given deep meaning. Specific characters' placement and involvement in the film is meticulous and purposeful, but generally. I want to give special attention to an aspect of editing that I touched upon earlier that goes into the last of three things that I think Parasite perfected, Uh, its pacing. With such a metaphorical film being edited in such a way that it gives meaning and purpose to everything in the film, it is little wonder that the pacing of it perfectly encapsulates the purpose I've talked about so much. Whereas other films spend precious shots giving audiences an unnecessary amount of explanation or time with a particular character or conversation, Parasite moves at a brisk pace. One in between being slow and tedious, such as walking and running to the finish line, so think of it like power walking. I'm going to highlight two very early examples of effective editing from the film. These aren't major plot points nor will they give away anything really, but if you don't want to know about anything about the film before watching, then I suggest skipping around. I'll try to keep it short for that reason. The first transitional cut I want to highlight is one where the matriarch of the Kim family Chung Suk asks her children to check for an email from a potential employer, pizza generation. After verbal confirmation by Ki-woo that the email was received, immediately cuts to a shot of, the pizza, of a pizza box and the family folding them for later use by the pizza joint. The second example is one where Ki-woo and his friend Min are having a conversation, wherein Min asks Ki-woo if his sister was good at Photoshop, which then cuts to a shot of a document being photoshopped on the program by Ki-jung, Ki-woo's sister. Again, these are really small insic- insignificant details or examples but fairly obvious ones there's absolutely no need for kiwoo to read out the email from pizza generation to his mother when we learn exactly what it says from the very next shot we don't need to hear kiwoo's answer to min's question regarding his sister's photoshop skills when the next shot will give us the answer essentially bang jun ho is saying why tell you when i can show you and i as a long time as a long time fan of film find it refreshing to watch a film that respects my time I've talked an awful lot about this one film, so let's move on to the second film on the list, one that I've said before shares many similarities to Parasite in its exploration of poverty from an entire parasitic family's perspective. Uh, This film is a Palme d'Or winner from Japan called Shoplifters from 2018. This film's central characters also fit under the parasitic name, maybe even more so than the characters of the Korean Oscar winner. These titular shoplifters form a non-traditional family, one that they all chose to be in a choice whose authenticity is questioned as the backstory of each member slowly unfolds. It's a film whose answers to the question, what is a real family, evolves throughout its runtime. Like Parasite, the answers to the questions it raises are vague and up to interpretation. Unlike Parasite, this film revels in its deep focus on its characters and their motives. Scenes are long. Oftentimes, it feels like the camera stayed on longer than intended, but managed to capture very real, very human moments. This is the first thing I think that this movie does better than most I've seen. The characters feel real, not necessarily because of the skills of the actors portraying them, which don't get me wrong, they do an excellent job, but because of the moments they are allowed to have with one another. Whether characters are talking about boys in the kitchen, or sharing a moment in front of a mirror, or if they are talking about puberty while swimming in the ocean, or just amusingly watching a young child lick salt from her hands, you'll get it if you watch the movie, These moments allow us to gauge an intimate understanding of what makes this non-traditional family just as much a family as if they were related by blood. Very rarely are we allowed to see characters interact with one another in ways or for reasons that aren't moving the plot forward directly. And watching a movie that largely consists of these small moments is both refreshing and rehabilitating. Art and life are two sides of the same coin, and art, like this, attempts to erase the distinction between the two. Another way that director Hirokazu Koreeda achieves this is By portraying the main conflict of the film beyond the trope of good and evil. This is something that it's kind of a recurring theme throughout this list of movies. There are numerous cases as to why each of these characters, with one exception, may fall to either side, just as is the case with real people. Um, Everything we do can be categorized in a spectrum of good and evil. But there is very little time actually overtly attempting to portray a main conflict. Instead, each character has a personal conflict that they have to overcome. It isn't a film about an entire family in conflict with class structures that's more of an implied backdrop instead focusing the personal conflicts instead it focuses on the personal conflicts I mentioned and once these conflicts begin to align once it is revealed how they are connected the film completely shifts into something darker something heavier we are witnesses to a family's irreversible evolution by now, you can tell that my favorite part of, about this movie is its realistic portrayal of its characters and their conflicts. I think the biggest thing that helps this film drive the point it's is, is trying to make is Correa's strong focus on dialogue. This film's insistence on being true to more personal dialogue, that is, a personal con- conversation between just two people, despite being an ensemble film, helps humanize the characters we are meant to empathize with. Most of the conversations you see in this film are between two out of the six main cast of characters making them ever so personal, ever so important to the symbolic undertones throughout. These are the vehicles that f- that forward the intimate moments I highlighted earlier. It's something I did not fully notice until my third viewing of the film, which I think goes to show how invisible the efforts are to make this the most intimate of dramas. Or maybe I just suck at watching movies. Anyway, the use of two-person conversations throughout the film really makes us feel like we are intruding, you know, like we aren't meant to be there. Later on, The film uses close, head-on shots that make us feel like we are a part of the conversation. It's a great movie that isn't so much entertaining as it is emotionally heartfelt. Speaking of a movie that most of you will not find entertaining, let's talk about another film from 2018, this time the Mexican Oscar winner, Roma, from Alfonso Cuaron, one of my favorite directors. I know these transitions aren't very, uh, fluid, but gotta get through all these films in one episode. Full disclosure, this film was made for me. Not literally of course, but a lot of the creative choices that Coron made for this film could not have made me happier. Its style, themes, pacing, cinematography, everything. Additionally, this film personally touched me as I was able to connect with my life, particularly through my parents who were taken back in time to when they lived in Mexico during this time period and specifically my mom whose experiences related in some way to those of the main character. I'll be honest with you, up until the last act of the film, I considered giving this film an 8 or so out of 10. I do this mentally. I like to rate things. And even right now, as I write this, I'm re-watching the film and must stop typing in order to fully enjoy the last third of the movie, which I consider an artistic masterpiece in tension and anxiety, something Quaron showcases well, so well, in his other works, specifically uh, Children of Men. Despite watching this film for about half a dozen times now, there hasn't been a single viewing where I didn't respond emotionally in a way not dissimilar to the characters on screen during that last third. Roma is a continuation of Corón's feminist filmography and largely based on his childhood. The men of this film are representatives of the worst of Mexican society. They're cheaters, verbal abusers, and unattached fathers. They are an ugly reality of the experiences of Mexican women and women around the world, really. The authenticity of the shittiness of some Mexican man is not the only authentic part of this film. As a 1970s period, period piece, this film gorgeously captures the environmental details of a 1970s Mexico city. You're transported in time and not allowed to come back until the film is over, due in large part to the choice of, you know, filming the movie in black and white. There's a level of authenticity unmatched, in my opinion, and whose strengths lie in much more than just the set dressing. One would be remiss to not mention the commentary on classism this film makes. You see, this film's authenticity captures more than just what can be glorified and what can be considered aesthetically pleasing. This film, this level of authenticity finds its way to the portrayal of the relationships between classism and colorism in Mexico. It's hard to miss that most of the people in this film, which are of higher classes, are also lighter skin com- of lighter skin complexions, uh, with the characters with a darker skin, indigenous peoples, uh, being reserved to roles of servitude. If you know anything about Mexico, you understand that this is very much the case. Just as a correlation between systemic racism and social class can be found in the United States, so too can it be found in Mexico. Whether it's serving upper-class families or being in the military, the characters of the film with darker skin are more troubled, more uh, uh, vulnerable. And that is not to say that the more well-off don't have problems of their own. The entire film depicts the family's problems that the uh, family's matriarch, uh, played by Academy Award nominee Marina de Tavira, faces. But I think Roma paints a clear picture that at the end of the day, Davida still has her family, whereas Cleo, played by Academy Award nominee Yalitza Aparicio, serves this family. A similar question brought up in shoplif- Shoplifters is brought up here too, um, which is what makes a family. There's a warmth and care that the housekeeper provides to the children of the household, unlike any provided by their mother, and certainly their father. So it could be said that, other than the absence of a biological connection, Cleo is more of a mother to the kids than their own mother, or at least a second mother. This is, of course, my mere interpretation, but it's hard not to make that connection. Finally, I want to talk about how this movie was shot. A large portion of the, f- of the scenes in this film were shot with a slow panning shot, which I think is an excellent driver to all the pre- uh, previous points I made. The authenticity of the environments is more easily captured when the camera pans around and shows you uh, everything in the shows you the environment, all that is visible: the city streets, the interior of the house, a forest on fire. It gives the audience a complete look into what is happening in the scene, which is often a lot, both in the background and the foreground. Additionally, this kind of shot reflects the slow and methodical pacing of the film. It gives you a sense of calm and puts you at ease that fast tracking shots, for example, do not. You can follow these characters as they they travel throughout the set in ways that simultaneously capture both the environment and the emotions. Static shots hold us in place physically and emotionally. There's a feeling of emotional claustrophobia, which pairs nicely with the anxiety that the most tense moments of the film capture. I understand that it may seem like an oxymoron, a type of shot that exudes calmness in the most anxious of moments, but it is this precise kind of complexity that art is meant to promote. It's movies like these that provide us with a sense of love and hope in otherwise hopeless situations, and that can help us relate to and express our most guarded feelings and insecurities. Up next is Asghar Farhadi's 2011 Iranian Oscar winner for Best Foreign Film, titled A Separation. A masterclass in realist filmmaking, A Separation tells a story of the dissolution of a couple's marriage, which is further fueled by a conflict with another family. That's as much as I'm willing to give story-wise. This piece of realist filmmaking does three things particularly well. It uses realist techniques to create a story grounded in reality. It muddies the moral waters and refuses to paint any of its characters as villains. And it depicts the struggles of those suffering from some sort of mental illness or disease. Nowhere in the film will you find the use of any sort of non-diegetic sound. That is, sound that originates from outside of the film's world that we can hear as an audience, such as the film's soundtrack or any special effects added post-production. Usually, non-diegetic sound or music is added to the film, whether it's to enhance the action scenes with a bit of fast-paced music, or to add to the sadder scenes with a melancholic musical piece. Farhadi, however, chose to do away with this and instead let his characters do the work. We don't need sad music to tell us when to be sad, or cheerful music to tell us when to be happy. We should be pushed to feel those things by the film itself, by the characters' act and boy does this movie make you feel. Adding to the grounded approach to the narrative, the film chooses not to present us a, st- a story of conflict between good and evil, which again, I mentioned back way back when, um, and instead has us bear witness to two simultaneous legal conflicts, with both sides of each being presented as equally valid and with a tint of moral ambiguity. The struggles and arguments of every character in this film are too complex to be stripped down to being classified as either right or wrong. As an example, I could highlight the primary legal trouble that a uh, primary legal trouble that deals with the titular separation. This is the main focus of the film and how it starts so I wouldn't be giving away uh, any major spoilers or anything of the sort. The film starts with a man and a woman in a court hearing discussing the woman's request for a divorce. This request comes because of his refusal to move abroad with her and their daughter her argument is that she wants to provide her daughter with opportunities that just aren't present in their home country of Iran. Furthermore, she wants to move away from many of the socio-political conflicts facing the country. But her husband is standing in her way as he both refuses to move away or to allow his daughter to move away with her mother. His reasoning is that he has a father with Alzheimer's whom they'll be leaving behind if they move abroad. He refuses to leave him even if it's for the betterment of of his daughter's future and he refuses to allow her to move with her mom because he believes that it isn't what she wants, what the daughter wants, that she would be better off with him. They both present valid arguments and reasons for wanting what they want, and it is ultimately neither the filmmaker nor the viewer's job to assert who of the two is in the right, because, in this case at least, they both are. We are to be mere witnesses to what has happened, and good God is what we are witnessing immensely palpable, both to the desperation of some characters and the determination of others. And it is this that I feel connects us as a contributor of class's commentary. It is the most well-off of characters who are overcome with determination and those who are socially below them who are so desperate to find justice, which coupled with the depiction of Alzheimer's and depression and possibly bipolar disorder, makes for a truly realistic portrayal of interclass conflict between members of the lower and middle classes of society. It adds to the sense of immersion that the realist techniques all but perfect everything from the struggles, the characters, the situation, the disorders, everything reached a new level of believability that truly captivated me from the first time I watched this film. I truly have never watched a movie that had me incapable of rooting for anyone and not for like bad reasons. (laughs) That had me questioning everything I knew yet also having me empathize with each character's struggle and reasoning. And the fact that it manages to pull off interweaving every individual character's struggle into the grand narrative is impressive to say the least. There are only two films I have ever watched with what I would consider to be perfect endings. By this I don't necessarily mean happy endings or endings that I saw coming but endings that made natural sense to the narrative and themes of the movie in a way that exudes extreme levels of gratification upon viewing it, even if it's not something that you necessarily wanted or what what the characters wanted. Those two movies are Toy Story 3 and A Separation. Oh, and maybe Parasite and probably the movie that I'm about to talk about next. Yeah, just those four. Chan-wook Park's Old Boy from 2003 was one of the first foreign films I ever watched. It stupefied me after watching it as a young teen, made me feel things that no movie before this had ever made me feel, and I can say with certainty that this was one of the movies that made me fall in love with movies. After watching it, I wanted to consume more art that was as meaningful as this. I probably would not have watched the other movie on this, on this list if it weren't for the film-focused journey I went through after watching *Old Boy*. This movie almost acts as the embodiment of every cardinal sin. Um, at least, that's how you feel after watching it. You feel dirty uh, and uncomfortable and almost ashamed for having taken part in this story and for enjoying it. This this it does exceedingly well. Old Boy is a greedy story with hyper realistic fighting choreography that is only second in quality to the Ip Man series, which I most certainly uh, would love to talk about in a second part of this film, foreign or foreign film discussion. The fight scenes in Old Boy are portrayed as realistic a fight scene I've ever seen. Uh, characters' punches sometimes don't connect. Each punch packs well, punch, and characters show visible signs of fatigue after only a few punches. It adds to the grittiness and uncomfortable nature of the film that I mentioned earlier. The violence, not just from the fight scenes, isn't necessarily the goriest, but it certainly exudes a level of discomfort most films simply do not. There is downright animal rights abuse in this film, so that should summarize that which I am talking about. But this feeling of discomfort doesn't just stay in the individual scenes, it pervades in the camera work, and it is an essential part of the narrative, so look forward to that. I also think that the acting in this film is phenomenal. Every performance is incredible, but special attention will be placed on the main antagonist and protagonist of the film. Uh, Dae uh, degradation of humanity is perfectly portrayed by Min Sik Choi, who delivers a gut wrenching and, again, uncomfortable performance from beginning to, end, especially end. The antagonist, whom I will not name, needs special mention a perfect counter to to Choi's Daisu this character revels in his brokenness and takes it upon himself to spread the pain in truly horrific ways I need to I need to mention that I believe that this movie's villain is one of the greatest villains in cinema history normally it's believed that empathizing with a villain is a sign of a great villain but empathizing with such a monster is virtually impossible and something I do not recommend viewers attempt to do a textbook sociopath he plays someone that the audience despises and yet is immensely invested in seeing his story play out. He is evil, capable of feeling, which to me makes him more dangerous. At least that's how I think. This entire uh, movie does what most movies choose to stray from, which is making you feel uncomfortable. Not in entirely obvious ways, such as using gore and extreme violence to elicit immediate reactions out of the audience, like in horror movies. Uh, Instead, the discomfort it elicits is found in both the style of the film and the context of the events. It's a long-lasting discomfort that will follow you for days after watching it. And I think that this way of approaching discomfort is the best way. The only way, really. I don't think I've ever watched a single horror movie from the 21st century that made me feel as the genre's name suggests. This is the closest to horrified I've ever felt from watching a movie, and again, it's due to the impeccable performances and an even better story. There's lots I want to say about this movie, but this, more so than the others on this list, needs to be experienced without knowing anything, or as little to knowing nothing as possible before viewing it. I can't say why this is the best or this is the case because telling you would be a spoiler in of itself, but watch Old Boy and watch it now. I can't even talk about the commentary it makes on class. Uh, as I did with the other films, because it would spoil it. So for now, uh, this will have to do. These art house films will undoubtedly be criticized by some of you for being too artsy, too pretentious. A valid complaint, but I think it's important to expose ourselves to d- different kinds of art than we are used to. Some of you may be used to watching, you know, the popular movies, like the Marvel movies or Star Wars. Um, but no matter how artsy or pretentious something like this may seem, it can't be den- denied that it is a piece of art worth it existing, worth consuming, um, but such as Star Wars and Marvel movies, if at the very least to criticize. These movies differ from the typical Hollywood action films as the emotions being captured are less positive and at times uncomfortable. They make statements over a society different than ours and that still manages to cover universal themes. It's hard to fully write or express my thoughts and opinions about a work of art. I'm sure I missed a lot of what I wanted to say, and I'm even more sure that it sounded like I was rambling for most of this episode. This platform has given me much-needed practice on expressing myself, so there is no doubt that I did a better job now than I would have even a year ago. I love everything that has to do with movies, like I said before. I love watching them, I love thinking about them, writing and talking about them, so I'm grateful to be able to share my thoughts and opinions over five of my favorite foreign films of all time, even if no one asks. Please let me know if you enjoyed this episode and if you end up watching any of these films. Um, Parasite and Shoplifters are both currently available on Hulu, Roma is available on Netflix, and A Separation and Old Boy both used to be on Netflix, but have since been removed. Um, you can rent A Separation on a number of platforms, including Amazon Prime, for around four dollars. And you could do the same with Old Boy, uh, or you can get a free trial for uh, Shutter on Amazon and watch it there, which is what I did for the purpose of rewatching it uh, for this episode. Anyway, that's gonna be it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show and appreciate the time and effort I put into researching, writing, recording, and editing it, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com socialmedicine. There's only one tier of a dollar a month, and that's for anyone who enjoys the show and wants to help build it. This episode was particularly time-consuming since I had to rewatch every movie I talked about, so pardon if you missed the clips I usually bring in from uh, my research. It should be back to normal next week. Thank you so much for listening to me ramble about the things I love. I'll see you all next week, but until then, stay safe and stay sane. Goodbye.